Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Jim. Jim, welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been uh, fantastic being able to chat with you and just uh, share a little bit about what the Lord's doing in our lives and those uh, types of things. Um, just to kick off our conversation today, can you uh, please tell us a little bit about your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry projects that you're working on, please? I was uh, reared in a godly Christian home. My dad was pastor of a Baptist church in southeastern Ohio, a very faithful preacher. So I grew up hearing good preaching. Uh, he was reformed in his theological perspective, and so I grew up having friendly exposure to the Prince of God's poverty grace. When, uh, when I was about 14, I asked the Lord to save me, and he did. And uh, for about the next three years, I worked uh, I went to church camps and various other ministries that are appropriate for a young man. Then the Lord called me to preach when I was 17. Uh, I was just out of high school in 1978. And so, uh, just to summarize, since 1978, now almost 41 years, I've considered that my, my primary calling in life is preaching the Word of God. And uh, so all through my college years and uh, everything else, I've just first and foremost considered myself to be a preacher. Uh, I married my wife, Carol, in 1988, and in 1989, uh, I was called the pastor of church in the hills of West Virginia. It was a delightful church. They wanted someone who was reformed in their theological perspective to be the pastor, and so uh, I pastored that church, and then uh, a church in southern Illinois, and was in Kansas City for about, uh, was in Kansas City for about three years before I got called to be a, uh, a professor at Boyce College. In 2002, I've been at Boyce ever since then. Wonderful. Well, I, I've heard from some of your students who I'm friends with that uh, you're a very good professor. Um, you you write very well, so um, I, I really enjoyed this book that we're going to talk about. So I can I can see why they speak well of you. Well, thanks very much. It's a great joy to it's a great joy to minister to them. Mm, amen. Can you uh, please tell us a bit about your book, Mere Calvinism, why you wrote it, and how you hope it's received? Well. <clears throat> I wrote it because I am exposed to a lot of students who would call themselves Calvinists, but on a friendly examination, most of them don't really have a very clear idea as to what Calvinism is. Uh, sometimes they've been favorably impressed by uh, a preacher that uh, they admire who is a Calvinist, and so I think they've just kind of jumped in and <clears throat> also claimed the Calvinist name uh, and are receptive to the teachings, but really cannot articulate them very well. So I especially uh, had in mind uh, the, the new, young, restless, and reformed Calvinists. But I also wrote with a view towards people who uh, may, may have had a hostile exposure to the doctrines of grace but are open-minded enough to read a book that uh, would explain what the doctrines of grace are. I felt like there was a need to write something that was very easy to read uh, without being uh, overly simplistic, but something that was easy to read, something that had a lot of illustrations in it that uh, the average person could understand. And I, I wrote with the goal that a motivated high school student would be able to understand this book uh, if 
if he or she tried to read it. And uh, I've had a lot of very positive feedback on how understandable and how simple it is. Most of the people who make some comment about it uh, say something favorable about its its clarity, and, and I, uh, I find that very gratifying because that was a goal. Mm, that's wonderful. Um, I, I, I love the book. I think that it's incredibly helpful. Uh, not only you mentioned students, I think uh, pastors, a lot of pastors don't understand what Calvinism is. And I think this is a, a really helpful resource. Um, you know, there's, I remember at, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was in uh, seminary, um, you know, I would go to Starbucks with a large stack of books and I would end up talking about the doctrines of grace with people. And they're like, Wait, but, but this and that. And, you know, mostly about evangelism or predestination, you know, of course. But, uh, I, I found that just, just, you know, the average person, they don't know what it is, as you, as you said. So it's not just students, but then in talking with a lot of pastors, they don't know what it is. Um, even those who they really should know, cause they've been to seminary and those kind of things, even they don't really have a good understanding of, of what this is. And I think that's interesting in my, that's just my experience, I'm not going to speak for anybody else there. But um, I would say that that's a widespread problem on this issue. So I, I, that's why I think your book is, I mean, there's other books like this, but I, I just really like the way that you, you wrote it. So well, thanks. I, I agree. I may have had students primarily in my sights as I wrote the book, but I know that uh, there is this widespread uh, shocking ignorance about Calvinism. Uh, usually if people <clears throat> have heard of Calvinism, then uh, they have not had a favorable exposure to it, and uh, they, they seem to have uh, their guard up ahead of time. Oh, that that's a bad thing. Uh, I mentioned early in the book <clears throat> that someone asks me, uh, I tell the story in the book, how someone asks me uh, in two sentences, what is Calvinism? And I try to summarize it with the, the two sentences. First of all, God does whatever he pleases. Secondly, God, God initiates, sustains, and completes the salvation of everyone who goes to heaven. But what you probably really want to know is, do Calvinists believe in missions and evangelism? The answer is yes. And the person who asked me that question, that was in fact what he wanted to know. But he had heard that Calvinists do not believe in missions and evangelism, and uh, that was the question he wanted to ask. Uh, people are <clears throat> have such uh, ignorance about Calvinism. If someone asks me, are you a Calvinist? I My response will be, I'm not sure what you mean. Could you ask me that question without using the word Calvinist? What, what do you want to know? And try to ask the question without using the word Calvinist. Hmm. And, and that kind of a question uh, often reveals a, a misunderstanding as to what Calvinism is. How do people respond to that? Uh, well, you know, they uh, sometimes they might they might need a little help. Uh, they might say something like, "Well, uh, I I don't know what Calvinism is, but I was I was told that I should ask you if you are one." So. I've not had that experience personally, but I've had people tell me that in an interview with the pulpit committee or some somebody else who was considering them for a job, that they've had that question, are you a Calvinist? And uh, the, the person being questioned says, what do you mean? They answer, well, I don't know what it is, but I was told to ask you. Hmm. And at that point, I think it's it's good for uh, 
the person being interviewed to say, well, probably what that person was concerned about was this or that. It's probably missions and evangelism. That's probably the number one concern that is raised by people who would ask that question who do not know what a Calvinist is. Yeah, that's really good. Well, I love the focus um, in this book that you put on uh, the Bible. On page 17, you say the focus of this book then is not to explain what Calvin taught, but to explain what the Bible teaches. Uh, Do you think that contemporary Calvinists are more prone to focus on what Calvin, Owen, Spurgeon, etc. have said uh, than being concerned with reading, studying, and teaching the Bible? I could say that that's often the case. I, I don't want to characterize the whole movement in that way, but I think that's often the case. Most of us who are Calvinists love to read, and uh, you know we have our favorites. We love the Puritans, and we love Spurgeon, and those Calvin, and those guys that you've mentioned, the Reformers. We love to read their books and have been greatly blessed by them. And then I think sometimes in uh, in our eagerness to help other people to see what a rich what a rich library of uh, blessed literature there is available to us that we sometimes just uh, end up talking more about books other than the Bible. I do think that that's a mistake. And, uh, and in the of course in the book, I, I try to really strengthen everything that I say with a lot of scripture. And uh, I remember when I, I announced in my classes uh, one week that the next week I was going to lecture on uh, Cal- the point, five points of Calvinism, and I met a student uh, in the in the days that followed before the, the week, and she had a concerned look on her face, and she said, "Dr. Oric, when you talk about Calvinism next week, you are going to use the Bible, aren't you?" She asked that because she had heard a lot of conversations on campus uh, where people ended up talking more about some book other than the Bible or maybe philosophy instead of uh, examining the scriptures and seeing what the scriptures plainly told. So I think that there's a there's a tendency among Calvinists to go outside the Bible too much and putting the best construction on it, I think it's just because we've been so blessed by these other books that we want other people to be blessed by them too, but it's a mistake to use those at the expense of what the Bible says. Yeah, that's that's well said. I'm I'm thinking when I when I asked this question, um, when I wrote this question, I was thinking of, you know, social media and we can, you know, quote all these guys and I, I certainly do and I and I wanna do that. My motivation in doing that is is to get people to read them you know, to get into those guys and to see that they have good things to say. But also, um, I see in the blogosphere as a whole, because my because I read a lot of different blogs and those kinds of things, or, or I have, and I've written for quite a few over the years, I think that we can tend, um, and, and this isn't a broad stroke at all, broad brush stroke at all, I think, to say that I think that oftentimes we either want to just talk about our theology, but not quote the Bible um, in our in our articles or something like that. And I see that as a weakness. Um, you know, if if we um, if we go to the Gospel of John, for example, we can actually teach somebody the doctrines of grace literally from those you know from that book. Um, it's it's there, and not only that, we can talk about the Holy Spirit too, um, which we know that was so important to Calvin and uh, all the reformers. And so I, I would just, you know, and I'm I'm saying also, 
And when I say that, that I've been guilty myself of, you know, writing in a way that is more theological and not necessarily quoting the Bible. Um, but we, we need to interact in our writing and our, in our teaching and our speaking with, um, what the Bible says, not just being theological and putting, you know, words down, but helping people see it from the text. And I think I probably get that a lot from Piper, um, there is, is show me in the text, show me where it is. Point me there. Help me to see it. You know, help me to savor it. Now I'm really sounding like like Piper, but I, I I just really appreciate that about Piper. Help me to see it. Help me to savor something of what that text means. So I I, I really appreciate that point. Yeah. In one of my classes now, we are reading uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, John Bunyan's spiritual autobiography. And uh, early in his spiritual struggles, Bunyan resolves that he would not embrace any doctrine unless the Holy Spirit taught it to him from the pages of the Bible. And I think that that's, that's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Uh, that's, that's exactly the way that it should be. With all of the other books that are available to us and the resources that are available on the internet, there is a real temptation to uh, read something other than the Bible more than we read the Bible. And I just think that's a mistake. I think we need to be men and women who are thoroughly saturated with the Word of God. Amen. On page 23, you you make a very important point that the Calvinist way of thinking is a way of looking at everything in the world. You say that it's a way of thinking about everything also. So why is it so important for Calvinists to see that Calvinism, rooted in Scripture, as we've talked about, is more than just the five points, but as you say, and others have, a world uh, I think many people think of Calvinism only in terms of how someone gets saved or the doctrine of soteriology. And then that that's a problem, and the problem is exacerbated by uh, their narrow view of what constitutes salvation. They think of it only in terms of uh, regeneration, justification, uh, things that happen at the commencement of the Christian life. And a broader view of salvation carries with it the, the lifelong journey of uh, <clears throat> learning to know God, learning to think like the Lord Jesus Christ, turning away from sin, dying more and more unto sin, and living under righteousness. I think that's, that's the bigger that's the bigger perspective of salvation. And for that bigger perspective, uh, you we must understand that God is in control of all the circumstances of our lives and the lives of those around us. And uh, so I'm, I'm uh, just before I, I started this interview with you, I was looking at Psalm 100. 19, and there are these, these uh, verses, before I was afflicted, <clears throat> I went astray, but now I keep your word. Or this, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in righteousness you have afflicted. Some people would say, wait a minute, God doesn't ever afflict anybody, especially not one of his children who's seeking to obey him. That's not the perspective of the psalmist. The, uh, the, the affliction may have been mounted by someone who is an enemy to the psalmist, and even someone who is an enemy to God, but God God is in control of that attack. God is in control of that person, and whatever that person means with his 
with his meanness and his ill treatment of you. God means it for good. Mm. And the only way that someone can really embrace and feel the comfort of Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and to those who have been called according to his purpose, the only way that someone can really consistently receive the comfort from that is if he believes that God is in control of everything. Mm -hmm. And so, it, to me, it's just critical for, for living life with, uh, with humility and living life with contentment to say, this is the hand of the Lord. Uh, let him do what is good in his sight. My main job in life is to make sure that my thought agree with God's thought, that my will agrees with God's will. And that's not just when I get saved at the, at the beginning of uh, my spiritual life, but it has to do with all of my spiritual life. So that's why I think it's so important that uh, Christians embrace a worldview where God is in control of all things, and he always does as he pleases, and that is the Calvinistic worldview. Amen. You know, um, I was so helped when I studied Hebrews, and just um, we, my to make a long story short, my dad had gone away for about six and a half years, and I've been praying for him, and, and the Lord brought him back, which is a t into my life, which we don't even have time to get into the, the whole of that story but I was also at the same time studying Hebrews and I was just really helped um, f for exactly the same reason um, that you just said you know in Hebrews we see how Christ is sufficient over all things and uh, how he summons us to come before his throne in um, Hebrews 2 17 18 and Hebrews 4 14 through 16 and we see how Christ is better than everything you know better than the rituals and and all of that um and I was just really I was really it was probably one of the, the best studies that I've done in my Christian life and I've been a Christian since I was five and um, I was just really really helped by that just to see the intercession of Christ on my behalf and then you know how that relates to and first John 2 1 and and other things and just reminded you know that uh, I'm loved uh, in the midst of whatever is happening that's difficult Christ is praying for me he's interceding for me I can trust him. I can, my hope can be clung, can cling to him. Um, it's just, uh, it was just really helpful to me during that time. Oh yeah. Dave, that, that is so important. Uh, and the, the book, when I first, when I start in the book talking about total depravity, uh, you know, I, I try to thoroughly explore what the Bible says regarding the devastation that sin has brought about in the human race. And it's, it's a pretty, dire, it's a pretty dire assessment that the Bible gives. It's so so people have been so devastated by sin that Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so I think uh, it's, it is absolutely crucial that we see ourselves as lost and undone before God, enemies of God, so that we will run to God for the, the remedy that he has provided in Christ. But then I think that some Calvinists fail to recognize that once you are adopted into God's family, you're no longer his enemy. Mm. You are his son. Uh, you, you should not. If you're a child of God, you should not keep on talking about yourself and thinking of yourself as an unworthy worm because God doesn't call you that even one time. Instead, he says that by his grace, we are his sons and daughters. And uh, I often hear people conclude services with quoting from the book of Hebrews, now, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly uh, more than all we ask or think and work in us that which is pleasing unto him uh, so that we're equipped for every good work. I, I don't have it memorized and so I'm maybe butchering that. But I sometimes hear that and I think, 
do do my Calvinist brothers believe that God ever answers that prayer? Does God mm. ever work in us that which is pleasing to him? Does he ever equip us to do what is good in his sight? And I, I say yes. But there are some people who kind of give the impression the only reason God ever puts up with you at all is because... Because he's restraining himself for Jesus' sake. And uh, I I want to give all glory to God and to, to Jesus. There was nothing in me that deserved to be saved. But now, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God. And that is what we are. So what you just said about coming to understand that God loves you and he is uh, watching over your life, that is a critical part of understanding the gospel. Mm, amen. For the sake of our listeners who may not be familiar with TULIP, can you walk us through what TULIP is? What does it mean? You know, those types of things, please. Mm -hmm. So the T stands for total depravity. And uh, I think that a better description of the doctrine is uh, uh, total inability, because what's really under consideration here is, is someone able to obey the gospel call and to come to Christ without divine help. Jesus said no one can do that, and the explanation of the doctrine of total depravity is why is that so? So I prefer the term total inability, but total depravity is okay. It doesn't mean that every person is as bad as he or she might be, but it does mean that every aspect of that person's personhood has been adversely affected by sin, so adversely affected that without God's intervening, he cannot come to Jesus Christ. So why does anyone get saved? That leads to the U. T stands for total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. And uh, the teaching of unconditional election is that out of uh, humanity, God chose certain persons that uh, would be become his children. He chose them not because he saw a condition in them that prompted him to choose them, but he chose them unconditionally. That's why the, the you, the unconditional part of election. I like to tell people, you've got to believe something about election if you believe the Bible. You can't just say, I don't believe in election. The word election or predestination is in the New Testament more than 50 times. So you've got to believe something about it. And um, I believe that the Bible teaches that election is unconditional. So that's the you. The, uh, <clears throat> and often when people hear about, uh, <clears throat> when they hear about Calvinism, that's the one thing that they hear. God has chosen who is going to be saved. And that has a tendency to make them angry. I sometimes tease with my students and say, I have found a way to uh, distract people from their anger when they find out that you believe in unconditional election. Tell them that you believe in limited atonement and they will forget all about unconditional election. Uh, limited atonement may be the most shocking of the three points because people have been told that uh, God loves everybody and he really wants everybody to be saved and Jesus died so that anyone might be saved. He provided a sacrifice so that uh, he died for everybody is the way that is usually put. But the doctrine of limited atonement says uh, God has made a provision for sinners, but he did not uh, provide Jesus to die for every human being who has ever lived. Instead, he died, Jesus died, so that the elect would certainly be saved. So the, the atonement is limited to the elect. I prefer the term particular redemption. Christ's redemption was offered for a particular people, but uh, limited atonement is the, doc, is the the name that it most often is used. So that's the T-U-L, and then the I stands for irresistible grace. Uh, I prefer the term effectual calling. Uh, 
because irresistible grace gives the idea that sometimes God saves people against their will. But the doctrine of effectual calling uh, asserts that uh, God makes people willing. He works in their lives. He does a supernatural work to uh, open their eyes to the truths of the gospel uh, and to renew their will and to make us willing and able to accept Jesus Christ as he's offered us in the gospel. So that's the I. And then finally, the P stands for the perseverance of the saints. And uh, that is the doctrine that uh, everyone that God has elected, everyone for whom Jesus died, everyone that the Spirit has called, is going to stay faithful to the Lord throughout life. It allows for the possibility of there being temporary backslidings, uh, and nobody is perfect uh, by a long shot. We continue to struggle against sin and towards holiness, but yet we do persist in the struggle and don't give up. God, by His grace, enables us to keep going. He enables us to persevere. So that's a quick summary of the five points. That's uh, very well said, and I, I I really appreciate the way that you um, explain that. I think it's um, very well done, br- as briefly as as you as you did that. So thank you, brother. Um, in your opinion, which point of tulip is the most contested, and why? Well, I think it's as I just intimated. I think it's the L limited atonement. Uh, and the reason the reason is because every many people have heard that uh, God loves you and Jesus died for you, uh, but that won't save you. And it's like uh, the fact that Jesus has died for a person is set up as the the evidence that God is a loving God. And so when people hear that the Bible teaches that Jesus did not die for everyone, then it strikes at the heart of their theology. Hmm. And they have a hard time reconciling a limited atonement with the view of God that they have been led to embrace, which is that God loves everyone just the same, and he wants everybody to be saved. So I would say that that is probably the the doctrine that is most shocking. If someone calls themselves a four-point Calvinist, you may be sure that it is the L, the limited atonement, that uh, they that they don't hold to. I, I just find that, uh, frankly, um, quite, well, not frankly, quite honestly, I, I find that to be, your your answer is excellent, but I find it to be shocking that people struggle the most with limited atonement. And and the reason is, is, is for, if we understand the art and science, hermeneutics, the art and and science of biblical interpretation. I mean, we can go to to First John and 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 uh, you know Second Peter three nine and and other texts and look at it in in its context and and see what the point is there. And I feel like if people, if you do that with people, uh, they'll, they'll, it helps them to understand. They may not still agree, but at least they see why you think that way. You know, why, why the text leans that way, uh, what it teaches. You know, we, we talked about Hebrews. I mean, it's pretty clear that Hebrews supports that. Same with John, um, and, and, in my opinion, and, uh, first John and second Peter as well. So, you know, I, I became a Calvinist exactly. Because um, actually, what what happened is I was uh, going through seminary and I was um, again considering these things um, because of the I, I studied the 
the um, I got a lot of classes in the Bible and those kind of things because I want to teach. I wanted to teach the Bible and or I was teaching the Bible still in and I wanted to get better at that. Um, and so the more I use those tools that I was learning, um, even at an anti-Calvinist school like Liberty, um, I, I became even more convinced. Um, my, my convictions grew actually stronger. Um, and I actually had to defend why I thought that multiple times. And, um, so I, I just want to help people to understand what it says from the text and, and to see that, um, you know, those using basic, very basic biblical rules of biblical interpretation, that the text supports it, the text teaches it. And, uh, you know, these are things that we, we both know that the church has always held to. And so I, I, I understand why people, that's, that's the most contested one. I understand why. I just think that it shouldn't be. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the, uh, it, it, to me, it's no accident that the rise in the popularity of Calvinism in the last 20 or 30 years has coincided with uh, the reclaiming of the Bible as the Word of God and the push for expository preaching. Because when you do expository preaching, you choose a text and you try to explain what it says, try to make the main point of the text, the main point of your sermon. And uh, I I know of people who... uh, studied, say, for example, Ephesians chapter 1, and just said, that could not possibly mean what it says. Mm-hmm. And it, But it, it shoved them into a search to determine, is this really true? And if so, how do I make it work with the rest of the Bible? Dave, what, uh, what happens is that the average person doesn't have three verses of Scripture in the whole Bible committed to memory. But if he has only one, was well, probably judge not that you be not judged, but the second most common one is John 3.16. And for a person who has not thought through the scriptures very thoroughly, it just seems obvious and incontrovertible that God loves everybody who has ever lived. And so when we're, when we're discussing issues regarding the sovereignty of God and for whom did Christ die, it, it is necessary for us to give a biblical explanation of what is meant by the words world and all. And I, I maintain that the word world almost never means everybody who has ever lived. It usually means all, all people groups without distinction, not all persons without exception. And uh, I, I devote a significant section of the book to answering what about the words world and what about the word all, because I, I think that's one reason why the doctrine of limited atonement is so difficult for people to accept, because they know the they know a few verses of Scripture that say that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We've got to explain what that means in its context uh, before they can readily embrace uh, the doctrine of particular redemption. That's exactly right. So the, the other question here um, that follows this is, in your opinion, which point of TULIP is most misunderstood and why? Oh, that's hard to say. <clears throat> uh, but... Probably, uh, probably it is the fifth, the perseverance of the saints. And I'm answering this from the perspective of someone who has been in the Baptist church his whole life and uh, has has heard a lot of uh, a lot of arguments against the perseverance of the saints. Although it's rarely called that in the arguments. So someone might say, "You Baptists believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved," and then they'll say something like this: "You believe that a man can get saved and then live the rest of his life as a drunkard and still go to heaven." Uh, and uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, we don't. We, we 
someone who lives his life as a drunkard is not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, and that's an indication that he was never saved in the first place. He might have had some kind of profound emotional or spiritual experience, but it was not salvation because salvation changes your way of thinking. A person who is genuinely saved may continue to struggle against drunkenness, but uh, he he never he will not live the rest of his life as a as a besotted drunkard because uh, sin cannot have dominion over him. Hmm. And uh, so I think that the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer, sometimes called the perseverance of the saints, and sometimes called once saved, always saved, is, at least in my experience, the most misunderstood. But it's probably most misunderstood because uh, many non-Calvinists are unaware of the other doctrines that might prove to be even more offensive. Uh, I, I, would, I would say the eternal, eternal security. Oh, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. I could not agree more, and you're absolutely hit on something, actually, that touches on this next question and you write about on pages uh, 166 uh, to 168 about the differences between once saved and always saved um, and explain how that differs from the perseverance of the saints I think it's probably I mean the whole book is important but I mean that's worth the price of the book right there just just being real honest um, can you pr- briefly walk us through that important difference and why it matters? First of all, there's nothing wrong with calling the doctrine once saved, always saved. It's uh, you know, it's catchy, it's accurate, it's true. Once you are saved, you're always saved. So there's nothing wrong with that phrase. What's wrong is the way that people often explain it. And uh, they and I think that their, their explanation leaves out two critical elements of salvation. They misunderstand what repentance is. So that's the first thing. They, they uh, may characterize repentance as nothing more than admitting that you are a sin. But repentance... Repentance unto life is much more than admitting you're a sinner. It is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, does with grief and hatred turn from his sin unto God, fully intending to obey God and doing uh, his best to pursue after God and obey God. That's that's a paraphrase of one of the exchanges in the Westminster Shorter Catechism answering the question, what is repentance unto life? And uh, so uh, that's one thing that is severely misunderstood, is repentance. The second thing that is severely misunderstood is what is saving faith. So again, to quote or paraphrase from the Catechism, uh, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And the way that he is offered to us in the gospel is as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, a whole Christ. A whole Christ who is a prophet, and he is a priest, and he is a king. And uh, so that means when you receive this person, you you listen to him because he's now your prophet. You rely on his sacrifice and his intercession because he's now your priest. You submit to his rule because he's now your king. And what uh, what is often said by those who misunderstand faith is that they'll say you've got to believe some particular doctrine about Jesus' life or ministry or his work. Usually they'll say you've got to believe that Jesus died for you. And uh, that is that is a superficial presentation of what the Bible says. 
because nowhere in the Bible does it say that if you believe that Jesus died for you, then you will be saved. Instead, the teaching of the, the, the Bible in general and explicitly in numerous texts is, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. Or, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And even John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In order to receive the true Christ, we've got to believe true things about him. But simply believing true things about Jesus is not necessarily the same thing as believing in Jesus and receiving a person who is now going to be your prophet, your priest, and your king. And so I think that's why uh, many people who espouse the doctrine of once saved, always saved, are, uh, are espousing something that is not true. But I do want to give them credit. They do at least know what the word eternal means. Mm-hmm. And so if they're just a, if that person is a one point Calvinist, it's probably because he is he's taking a number of verses of scripture at their face value and understands what the word eternal means. And so I want to uh, be, uh, commend him for that. Yeah, that's a that's a really helpful answer. Thank you, sir. Um, in what way should the five points of Calvinism lead to humility and transformation in the life of the Calvinist? Well, people. <clears throat> When people first hear about the doctrine of election, they mistakenly say, oh, that must make you feel very proud that God chose you and he didn't choose everyone. And that's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of election. Uh, A true understanding of the doctrine of election recognizes that God chose me unconditionally. I did not deserve his favor. There was nothing that I could do to earn it. He didn't need anything that I have or can do, and he saved me out of his mere good pleasure. And that's that's very humbling. And uh, then to think that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life to reconcile us to God. Uh, there's, there's great power in the cross to, uh, to bring us to our knees and uh, to a place of humility, and uh, that then we, the work of the Holy Spirit was as necessary for our salvation as was the work of Christ, and that if the Holy Spirit had not moved in us to repent and believe, that we never would have done it. Again, uh, nobody, no one who understands these things and really feels them can put his thumbs beneath the suspenders and say, I'm here because I was a little bit smarter, I'm here because I was just a little bit more spiritually sensitive. It is all by God's grace that we are now in his family. And so that that promotes humility. And of course, uh, humility is... Well, to quote John Calvin, he said, if I were to be asked what are the three most important qualities for living the Christian life, I would answer humility, humility, and humility. Hmm. That the, the answer is correct. I'm not sure that the setup was exactly word for word what Calvin said, but that's the gist of it. So humility is essential for living the Christian life. Amen, brother. I have nothing to add to that. That's really well said. Well, uh, moving into uh, some practical questions related to your book and you're not specifically covered in your book. What are your concerns with the current Calvinistic resurgence? Well, there's always a danger that someone is just going to superficially embrace the teaching and then falsely conclude that he is therefore a Christian. Mm. So that's that's a real concern. We we are not in the family of God. We are not going to heaven because we believe right doctrine. Mm. We are in the family of God and the kingdom of God because we have received the right person. Mm. And uh, my one of 
of my main concerns is that uh, that people will mistakenly think that just because they can articulate the five points of Calvinism and because they really know Reformed doctrine well, that therefore they are inevitably in the kingdom of God. Mm. And uh, so that that's a uh, that's a severe danger, mm. and that's one of my one of my great concerns. Uh, then related to something that we we said earlier, because uh, so much of the community of Calvinism is carried on via uh, internet sources and online, and I, I, I'm concerned that uh, a lot of young people today, not just young people, but older people as well, are going to waste their lives reading blogs and emails and not walking with God. There's only so much time you've got. The thing that you do crowds out the thing that you might have done. And if you're spending hours and hours a day reading stuff on the internet, those are hours that you're probably not walking with God. And so that's not a specifically Calvinistic problem, but uh, uh, maybe maybe Calvinists are a little more prone to that, that, uh, that danger than others. Yes, that's well said. What do you see as the strengths of this current receipt? Resurgence. Well, I think that there is a willingness to uh, a willingness to be to swim upstream, a willingness to embrace what the Bible says, even though uh, it's widely misunderstood in the culture at large and in the uh, and often in, the, in a person's Christian community. So I think that's good. I, I appreciate uh, the boldness and the willingness to to go out and uh, just believe what go out on a limb and believe what Jesus says and I hope that it's often accompanied with a willingness to go out on a limb and do what Jesus says, not just believe what the Lord says, but also do what the Lord says. I see a lot of boldness and openness to uh, to receiving radical teaching and radical living that uh, I have not seen everywhere else. Mm, that's uh, that's very good. Um, if you were to sit down with the new Calvinists, what advice would you give them? Well, if he's, if he's just brand new and has come to uh, to understand the doctrines of grace, I, I want to rejoice with him for a while. These are these are doctrines to, to make a man or a woman really happy. And uh, then, as the opportunity arises to say, uh, of course you know not everyone believes these things. And I just urge you to be patient. Be careful in the, in the way that you talk to people. Uh, try to be gentle and make sure that you do not get angry. Your anger probably indicate some immaturity. Uh, you would not know these things if God had not revealed them to you. Grant that same uh, that same attitude towards the people with whom you're talking. Mm. So don't get mad at them because they don't understand it. They're not going to understand it unless the Lord reveals it. So speak, uh, speak gently, speak forthrightly. You don't need to hide what you believe, but uh, back it up with uh, a life of kindness and humility and love and and, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's what I would say to a new Calvinist. Well, that is, uh, wow, that that that's just good advice, and for the, any Christian right there, I think. Um, yeah. Just uh, I, I know, I know, um, coming out of seminary and the and you know the first few years, I even though um, I was pretty grounded, and I've been a Christian a long time, um, you know, I was becoming even more convinced of these things, and I know that uh, I had to be taken aside by one of my pastors and and uh, have a talking to. Which 
that can be scary, but I, I'm so glad. I'm so, I'm, well, I'm, I'm so eternally grateful that he did that um, because it really helped me to, to be, as you just said, even though I've been a Christian a long time, to be more gracious, to be less angry, to, to really address stuff in my life. Um, and, I, and that's why I said what I did. I think that's just great advice for, for any Christian. I, I'm very happy that you said that. Thank you. Um, so... Sir, there's a lot that we haven't talked about in the course of this interview. Just as we wrap up, um, and as listeners go ahead and pick up your book, can you give us a few takeaways that you might have for them? A few takeaways from the book? Yeah, or the topic as a whole, whichever you prefer. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I do want to urge upon people to uh, have an, an open mind regarding what the Scripture says. Uh, sometimes when people are confronted with rather direct and plain statements in Scripture that disagree with long-cherished ideas, they will foolishly say, my God would never do that. Mm. And uh, if, if the Bible says that God does something, and you say, my God would never do that, then you probably have the wrong God. Uh, I, I don't think that the Calvinistic system answers all of your questions. You know what? If you become a Calvinist, it, it's not the period on your search for, for truth and tranquility. There are, uh, there are disturbing things in the Bible about God. But I would rather uh, be disturbed by trying to understand what the Bible plainly says than I would to be disturbed over trying to avoid what the Bible plainly says. If, uh, if what I read in the Bible requires that I revise my understanding of who God is, then so be it. It's God's book. Uh, let, let him say what he wants to say. I don't have to defend him for it. I expect that when I am encountering God and, and walking with God, that there will be many, many things that I don't understand. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so much are his thoughts above my thoughts. And I think that uh, Calvinist or not, sooner or later, everyone who gets saved has got to say, he's the potter and I'm the clay. Mm. Well said, Jim. Well said. I really uh, I really have been encouraged by our time together, even just before and uh, during the recording as well. I, I very much appreciate your very pastoral and helpful answers. So thank you for your time today, sir. Well, you're sure welcome. It's great talking to you, Dave, and hope we can talk again sometime. That would be fantastic. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.